0: plushcare.com slash weight loss it's the wonky show
1: we're talking pack on ofs ifs on student support belonging and all the latest action for the free speech bill it's all coming up
2: that you know they're not being they're not being based on accurate reflective data students are being ignored when anyone talks about the cost of living well well the only person who talks about it is jim dickinson who's been shouting about it for some time but it's not being mentioned anywhere inside or outside the sector like the happy conference last week had michelle donnellan there and she said nothing about this at all
1: Welcome to The Monkey Show, your weekly way into this week's Higher Education News Policy and Analysis. I'm Monkey's editor in chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to untangle the acronym Spaghetti of HE Policy News this week are three fabulous guests as always. In Reading, it's Ben Elgar, Chief Executive of the Office for the Independent Adjudicator. Ben, your hire to the week, please. Hi, Mark.
3: So on Saturday, I was invited to the summer ball of my former employer, Reading University Students' Union. The first for three years, absolutely brilliant to see it up and running again. And they were even able to gather and congratulate the sabbatical officer team of all the three years, which clearly meant a lot to all of them. So it was rather fantastic. Lovely. I have been to the Reading Student
1: Union before and had and had a blast. In Gravesend, it's Selina Bolingbroke, HE consultant. Selina, your part of the week.
4: Uh, I went to a theatre performance on a lighting ship in the uh, Thames Estuary at the weekend. And I watched a bit of drama musical about the lost communities of Sheppey which is not something you do
2: every week.
1: And in Sheffield, it's Sunday, Blake, Wonky's Associate Editor. Sunday, your highlight of the week,
2: please. My highlight of the week absolutely was the uh, event we ran yesterday with Pearson uh, on our belonging research, which was so much fun. Uh, We had such good discussion with all the attendees, which I think sign-ups were nearly at 700, which was amazing. Um, And yeah, lots of engagement, lots of food for thought. So yeah, really buzzing from that.
1: More on that later. Now, we start the week with a big Public Accounts Committee report on OFS and higher education. Selena, talk us through it.
4: Yes, Mark. Uh, this is a report that could be subtitled, Nobody's Happy. Um, PAC's not happy. DFE are not happy. Students aren't happy. And no doubt, having been pretty much slated in this report, OFS aren't happy either. Uh, so the... Public Accounts Committee, which uh, has a Labour chair, Meg Hillier, but actually, you know, nine out of 16 members are Tories on the uh, uh, Public Accounts Committee. So uh, a, a good mix there. Um, they have criticised the OFS for not making sufficient progress in getting a grip on the long-term problems facing the sector, and they've also criticised the DFE for failing to hold OFS properly to account. So, what they're highlighting in this report is the long-term financial viability, uh, which has been caused by an increase in the proportion of institutions with in-year deficits, from seven percent in 2015-16 to a whopping 32 percent in 2019-20, which is of course. The 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 year before the impacts of COVID hit institutions. Um, They make six recommendations uh, in their report. It is a fairly snappy report. They actually only took um, evidence from, I think it was just three people from the sector, including the OFS. Um, But what they're really highlighting here is a number of things. One is the sector's reliance on income from overseas students and that there are Issues around that in terms of the UK's geopolitics. Uh, The other thing is about insufficient protection for students when their institutions face financial distress, and in particular around the implementation of student protection plans. And then the third issue really is around falling student satisfaction, particularly in relation to value for money.
1: So, yeah, there's a lot in this, isn't there, Ben? Do you think it's a fair charge that RFS is not on? It's the financial viability of the sector, kind of RFS. Responsibility to, to to kind of stop, or is it just the regulator? And you know, it's kind of university's fault for I guess you know the the, the pressures they're under, not the mismanagement or what have you.
3: Well, obviously there have, you know been immense financial challenges uh, through the last period. What I really did welcome in this actually is that there is a focus on the the effect, the impact of the financial stability actually on individual students. I think we sort of went through a bit of a stage, didn't we, where it was almost, we were talking about it like a sort of badge of honour for the market if if providers were lost. And given the really difficult experiences around GSM, Alderman Drama School, going bust, which would have been even worse, actually, if other providers hadn't stepped in to take the students, I was really pleased to see that focus. I, I still think there is a genuine risk of a situation where students are left without redress or remedy at all and that's something that the OIA we've been we've been calling for a sort of sector-wide insurance fund to help students in that situation and perhaps that's something actually where the government and the regulator and as you say the sector actually need to come together over that.
2: I think that I'd like to commend the Public Accounts Committee for doing what we'd all love to do just tell the office of students to get a grip. <laughs> um, but really important comments, uh, I think, about the over reliance on international students. Uh Not, uh, and I know that they're talking about long term health and viability of the sector here. But I think that it's also important to acknowledge that you know international students are overtly aware that they are the ones footing the bill and keeping the whole operation afloat. They know this. You talk to any student, they know this. And I think one of the things that we just need to be really aware about is aware of is when you have a group of students who feel that like they're disproportionately uh, being relied on to fund things, and then they have a dissatisfying student experience, which a lot of them also do. They have even higher levels of resentment, and that's something that you know institutions or the sector has to deal with further on the line. So I think it's really important to note that you know students are very very aware that this is happening.
1: Mm. There was a tension here, though, isn't there, that the the report highlights about the role of OFS and and its kind of place in in government and and the sector. I mean, Selina, the, the the report says that the um, needs to hold OFS more properly to account. On on one hand, on the other hand, uh, lots of people concerned about exactly that in terms of you know the the, the government holding OFS to account, or or in other words, interfering politically with the work of the regulator. And Susan Lapperth pushed back against that that charge this week. Um, I guess you know where uh, it, it, where's the where's the right balance here because on the one hand PAC wants a, a greater role for dFE on the other the sector wants kind of you know RFS to have that much more independence from you know the the the, the political machinations.
4: Yeah, I would highlight the first sentence of the PAC reports introduction, which says universities and other higher education providers are autonomous institutions with a high degree of financial as well as academic independence. Um, and I think this comes back to what are, you know, essentially structural or at the very least systemic tensions within the system. And, you know, one of the things that's not returned to enough, um, in it with, with this government or, you know, this 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 parliament in particular is the going back to the origins of policy. And, you know, I think the origins of policy here are 11 years ago when students at the heart of the system was published. Um, and it's really quite clear, I think, to everyone, whichever way you look at this, that 11 years on, students are still not at the heart of the system. Um, there are some um, baked in tensions that are not going to be resolved without real structural change. So even here where PAC is exposing the financial vulnerability and the vulnerability of students in terms of protection from that financial crisis, it's not really addressing what is at the root cause of that vulnerability. And at its most straightforward, it's the simple business equation, isn't it, in terms of you've got rising costs, of which those costs are not going to, you know, those pressures are not going to go away. You've got a falling unit of resource for the majority of university activity. And you've got students who, you know, when they're assessed essentially about their views, about quality, about value for money, they are in the final year of the degree, they are still students. Wait until they are <laughs> graduates and they've looked at their first loan statement with all of its accrued interest in the next few years and then think about how they feel about that value for money then. I think, you know, I just come back to, I think that this is something that, you know, that we are not in the time of politics that anybody is going to be bold enough to bring about the radical change that is required. But I don't think that takes away from the fact that we are still at a point where making tweaks here and there is not really going to change the bigger picture on higher education. And alas, I think it is going to be um, a source of discontent for all stakeholders over the next few years.
1: Uh, ben, as, we, as we've as we got you, uh, do you, do you wake up in a cold sweat at night imagining a public accounts committee coming for uh, the no, I No, I was too
3: busy worrying about what you were going to ask me on the on the wonky show actually mark but i i i think um you know we we all we all obviously have to be um accountable and certainly we're very aware that our role has become you know much more visible and in some ways more central in in the last couple of years and i hope that we've we've shown a willingness to to explain you know what we're doing and why we're doing it and certainly one of the things we found in the in the pandemic time in particular is that getting out information explaining what we can do what we can't do what our role is what our role isn't and how we were deciding um cases you know, has been seen as, as helpful by sector, government, student, student organisation.
1: Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this
3: week.
0: Hello, I'm Catherine Harrison-Graves, Executive Director for Membership Innovation and Development at Advance HE. One of my areas of work includes overseeing the revisions to the Professional Standards Framework for Teaching and Supporting Learning in Higher Education, or the PSF. Since its inception in 2006, the PSF has developed and evolved. It was previously reviewed in 2011 and there are now almost 160,000 fellows that have had their practice recognised against the PSF across the globe. The learning and teaching landscape has changed considerably since the current version of the PSF was published in 2011. So earlier this year, the team at Advance HE committed to facilitating a sector-led review of the Professional Standards Framework. We're now entering the second phase of consultation and are inviting colleagues from across the sector to provide feedback on a revised draft of the framework via a survey which is accessed via the Advance HE website. The survey is open until the 17th of July and I'd really encourage anyone with an interest to participate and help ensure the framework continues to serve the sector both now and in the future.
1: James Coe is here to tell us what's going on with Horizon.
5: Hello, it's James from Team Wonky calling in on Horizon Europe, what association looks like, whether it's possible or not. So, earlier this week, Osline Laser, the Chief Executive UKRI, and George Freeman, Minister for Science, Research and Innovation, both appeared before the Science and Technology Committee to discuss diversity in STEM, funding and association to Horizon. Now, anybody who's been following research in the sector will know that Association Two Horizon is the government's plan A. They've said again and again it's their priority, they think it is the best result for the UK. The funding for it was agreed in the most recent spending review, and in theory there are no internal political constraints to preventing association. But it gets more complicated with the proposed ripping-up of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The EU Commission see this as an unacceptable breach of the Brexit Treaty, and in return it seems unlikely that association to Horizon will be possible until this and other political issues are resolved. This has led to George Freeman in consultation with parts of the sector working on what he is calling Plan B. Now, Plan B doesn't seem entirely clear just yet, but in theory it is meant to capture the best parts of Horizon with more emphasis on flexible funding for researchers and research, more international collaboration, backed up by new infrastructure investment. We were told in the Select Committee appearance that if there are no signals of association by the summer, then it will be necessary to look at Plan B in earnest. If Plan B is to come in, the interregnum period moving between the current system and a new system will begin in September 2022. This will take between a year and 18 months, so it should be the case that by 2024 we've moved over to a new funding arrangement. The concern for the sector, of course, is that in that time, there'll be funding, partnerships and opportunities that are lost, adding to the general uncertainty about research at the moment. Although we are no further forward, this is clearly going to be one to watch.
1: Now, we published the latest tranche of research into belonging and inclusion at University Sunday. Talk us through the headlines.
2: Okay, this is something I'm really, obviously really excited about as I've Previously mentioned, Um, so this is basically, um, we've been tracking for a year now, for the academic year, uh, a diverse uh, group of students as they come back onto campus um now this was looking at how they reacclimatize post covid but we've also been looking at like more long standing issues around um, belonging and inclusion as they've come up as well um it's national survey data we, i think we're clocking up to about 6000 participants now made up of um staff and students um and by staff i mean uh, academics professional service staff and um student union staff as well um on Wednesday we held uh, an event with Pearson which looked at the key findings. Um so these these findings were essentially looking at things like uh sense of belonging, academic confidence, and also uh peer networks. I personally feel that the peer network uh findings are the most important. Um and I'm I know that uh we'll be releasing these findings in full on Monday and uh my colleague Jim, uh, will be, uh, writing a blog about specifically the peer networks and connections and whose responsibility it lies to foster those. Um, for me, one of the most interesting things is that when, when these discussions were first happening, particularly around COVID time. So, uh, we were talking about students accessing their course materials online but then saying that you know they feel lonely or they feel isolated and there was a lot of sort of back and forth about well whose whose responsibility is that that students have friends right (laughs) that was how it was interpreted but actually when you look at what some of the students are saying in this research they're not actually talking about friendships. They're talking about uh, being part of a learning community. And I think that one of the things that's got to come out of this research, which I think is gonna be very beneficial moving forward for the sector, is uh, a real clear delineation that the students themselves make between their, their courses and being part of a community on a course that you can contribute to, that you can uh, be part of that you can discuss the course material with, you know, that sort of thing is very, very different from friendship groups. And that's across the board, right? That's not just 18 year old school leavers who have their housemates and their course mates. That is also coming from uh, participants who are mature students, who are saying, you know, I've got friends, I've got a supportive spouse, I've got my children, I don't need to come here to socialise but I do want to be part of a learning community and this all comes back to a sense of belonging that for for many students and this this came out so so clearly right at the beginning of the research and it's just carried on throughout that students feel a sense of belonging not when they attend university but when they are actively uh, doing something for the university, right? So it's when, when you start to give back or you are, a, you co-produce the university environment, whether that's through co-production of knowledge on a project, whether that's, um, being an ambassador, what, you know, working in the student bar came up as well. It's that sense of belonging. Uh, it, it really, um, it is enhanced when you become, well, part of the community, right? Um, so yes, that's, that's, that's what I find the most interesting part. And actually when it comes to responsibility of who to foster that, whose responsibility is it to foster that? It becomes everyone's responsibility, including the students themselves. Um, because there is a little bit of backlash around, especially particularly around academic workloads. And we have to be really careful with that because obviously there's industrial action going on about that at the minute. Um, but yeah, that's, um, it's, it's not, what the task that we're asking is not the task that students want, if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> and, and looking at the research that we published from the, the staff survey, I mean, there's, there's a lot of agreement, isn't there, Selena, a, a, from kind of staff and students that that, that relationship is really key. So the, the staff survey that we're publishing now kind of backs up the earlier finding that the that, that from that we that we understood students really recognise that the relationship and the contact they have with their um the the academics on their course and, and the people in the department is so powerful when it comes to their feelings of, of belonging and inclusion. And that's that's something to build on, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it is something to build on. And I think it's worth acknowledging that Probably over the last sort of 20 years, I mean, it's been a a kind of gradual creep, I guess, accelerated in some universities uh, and not so much in others, but there is an atomization of the student experience and indeed the staff experience. I mean, I think that's been the more recent thing. Um, I was somebody who went on one of the very early modular degrees in the 1990s. And I think I absolutely understand what Sunday picks up as the distinctions between friendship groups and learning peers, because I think that was one of the very early challenges then. And I think it's more of a challenge now simply because of the pressures, not just around course attendance, but, you know, Uh, life survival and fitting in part-time jobs and all the rest of it. But I think that, what would be a really sensible way to approach this is for universities to think at the point of degree ra- uh, validation, um, course design, how you design these elements as an integral part of the programme in a way that has the kind of requisite flexibility that is required, but that it is very clear for students who come on that programme that first of all, the university will put forward, if you like, I'd call it a kind of structured pathway they way find how those peer networks are created and they value what those peer networks create. And when I say value, I think, you know, it's always good to have assessment as part of the valuation scheme for that, because that means students get used to taking those things seriously. But it is a really important part of that learning journey. And there's plenty of research out there. I know I came across some Uh, from Exeter University a few years ago that showed there was demonstrable effects on student attainment at the end of the first year. More so with students who came from a non traditional HE background because they hadn't engaged in those peer networks and they hadn't done the kind of accidental stuff. That full time students without lots of other responsibilities uh, got to do.
1: Ben, this, this, I'd be fascinated in in, in your take on this because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, the more, the better that the the sector gets at fostering belonging and inclusion, um, ultimately the less work you're going to have to do at the Office of Independent Judicature, right?
5: And
3: I was so interested in the, in, in the, the new connections and, and peer relationships bit as well. And I, I really think that possibly we all underestimated, especially pre-pandemic, just how key some of those things that go on not in classes but sort of around and in the margins of classes, how, how important they are. And another thing I, I picked out, it's very interesting um, stuff around um, personal tutors and what's the role of personal tutors and what's the role of other tutors. And I think there's there's a sort of ongoing debate there, isn't there, about – where the, the personal tutor system starts or stops and whether it is really systematic and what needs to come in from student services and increasing pastoral roles in those areas. And I think you know the, the fact that universities and um, providers are giving that so much consideration is, as you say, a, a real way of sort of stopping complaints at source.
1: You can read all the research um, on monkey.com. You can find links in the show notes. Uh, we're publishing, as Sunday said, more on Monday and more to come in September. Now, the Influential Institute for Fiscal Studies has a new report on student support, uh, largely cribbed, I should say, from uh, the pages of, of Wonky. Not that we're bitter, but uh, Ben, uh, t- talk us through its main findings. Right at the sharp end of the student funding debate,
3: its assessment of student maintenance support shows it to be its lowest level in real terms for seven years, principally due to the use of out-of-date inflation predictions at a time of obviously rising inflation, meaning students will receive up to £1,200 less than if up-to-date metrics have been used. They also point out the situation is compounded by the continuing freezing of the parent learning threshold, so fewer students can actually access the maximum loan, and the decision not to implement proposals from the AUGA review that would have brought back a level of student grant or linked maintenance support to the national minimum wage. But the biggest question seems to be how can it be justified to use out of date predictions to this effect when newer ones have been available for some time?
1: And who is going to do anything about the massive squeeze on students? Any ideas? I'm genuinely asking.
2: I mean, I think for me, what's worrying and I think one of the things that contributes to this or one of the things that contributes to the inaction is that there's this horrid, persistent sort of idea that that it's like a rite of passage to be skint as a student. And it's that kind of like baked in baked bean stereotype. And I think that we need to challenge that um, because... This report obviously is directly related to the cost of living crisis, right? Like student living and maintenance costs are something that is also, that's being ignored that, you know, they're not being, they're not being based on accurate reflective data. Students are being ignored when anyone talks about the cost of living. Well, well, the only person who talks about it is Jim Dickinson who's been shouting about it for quite some time, but it's not being mentioned anywhere inside or outside the sector. Like, The HEPI conference last week had Michelle Donnellan there and she said nothing about this at all. Um, and then yesterday, the questions that she was given in the, in the education committee, again, not one person asked about the cost of living, the impact of students and, and how their, how their maintenance and student finance is being worked out. And I think this is a little bit tangential to the report, but it is, it is related to like the oversight of real time student costs because i actually don't think students are that worried about loans from you know the ones that i talk to everyone talks about loans but it is it, it they are more of like an abstract amount of money that cut that you know it's going to come off their paychecks in the future but right now the cost of living is um is really pressing um and i think that uh higher education providers are going to get more and more hardship fund applications in the short term um you know, how will the sector or government provide guidance around this? Is it going to be a postcode lottery? <laughs> like, depending on which institution you're at, depends if you get help or not. Uh, because it's going to have, I can't remember what study it was, but there was a study that came up really recently that said that the stress that you undergo uh, with financial concerns as a student can actually contribute to long-term anxiety disorders, as if student anxiety wasn't high enough, you know. Um and then we've already got mental health issues in the sector which the institutions will be expected to fix with well funded wellbeing services um and then students themselves obviously are going to be working more hours more part time jobs they may be turned into unregulated high risk work like sex work or drug running which can lead to more uh issues for them uh dropout rates will go up i know i'm catastrophizing right now but it's it is something that more people other than jim dickinson on twitter threads should be talking about because students live in the financial context of the real world they don't live in a bubble you know it's not
1: yeah and i mean the 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 rfs does does suggest some some easy fixes for this so for example sorting out uh inflation so using more recent forecasts so that um um at the the moment what's happening is that students are going to be eligible for 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 smaller maintenance loans because um because parents uh uh, have had real terms falls in their their, um, income but cash rises um and and sort of this nasty sort of hidden inflation effect that's that means that students are going to get kind get less support so there's some easy there are some not easy but there are some fixes aren't there?
4: I think it comes back to um, actually Sunday mentioned it much of what she says I agree with in terms of it being a, an issue that not enough people are talking about it's not getting the political attention that it should but it seems that the only time that students get attention is when that student demand falls away in a way that will impact on institutions. So I, I think that that's problematic because I can't see how this is going to turn itself into a priority issue, given all of the other competing demands around the cost of living crisis. That doesn't diminish it in any way at all. And I think, you know, Sunday's right to catastrophize. But I, I just worry that, you know, there will be very little done around this um, until, it starts to break the system because applications do start to turn. But I don't think that's going to happen in the next few years.
1: Now, David Kernahan from the team is also here to talk to us about graduate outcomes data.
6: It is fair to say that we were all more than usually interested in the 2019-20 release of graduate outcomes. This, after all, was the cohort that saw out the last days of their course with emergency remote learning and that suffered with online assessments, with some of these sudden shifts mitigated via no-detriment policies. On graduating in the early summer of 2020, they entered a job market and did an economy unlike anything that had ever been seen before. On taking their collective temperature 15 months on, what did we learn about how they did? The word I find myself reaching for is NORMAL. A word used advisedly, there have only been three releases of graduate outcomes and each has been special in its own way. But as an emerging time series, you wouldn't exactly spot the pandemic unless you knew what to look for. Response rates were slightly down, just 48% overall across the sector. But what graduates were doing was pretty similar to last year and the year before. The clues were there, however. The benefit of advantaged backgrounds are beginning to be seen around the edges of what had previously looked like a testament to equality of opportunity. Though state school-educated graduates were still slightly more likely than their privately educated peers to have a full-time job, there is now a five percentage point gap when it comes to further study. You need, it seems, a well-off family to stay on to do postgraduate work. The much decried grade inflation doesn't appear to have had an impact on early career employment. Despite stern warnings to the contrary, employers seem to be taking 2019-20 first as equivalent to firsts in any other year. I was surprised to note computing as the academic field of study most likely to lead to unemployment and that psychology is the major subject most likely to land you a low-skilled so-called job. But what we really need to be concerned about is graduate anxiety, already high the last two years have seen it rise to alarming levels. And if you wanted to design a graduate outcomes-based intervention as a regulator, I'd be sorely tempted to do something to address the mental health needs of recent graduates. As always, there's lots more on the site, including my usual range of visualisations.
1: Now, the free speech bill is motoring its way through Parliament now. Uh, Selina what's the latest progress?
4: Uh, yeah at third reading um, at the moment and basically there have been amendments that mean that OFS will now get powers to address concerns around the impact of overseas funding on academic freedom. So the talk is that any income above £75,000 requires some declaration and um, So this would give the Secretary of State the power to terminate partnerships between universities and overseas partners if overseas partners were found to be uh, stifling freedom of speech. Um, There are a couple of other uh, sort of technical amendments there in terms of who is now included within the category of academic staff. So it will include visiting and honorary members um, and the other significant government amendment that has uh, gone through is that uh, u- universities or student unions will not be able to use uh, the high cost of security as a reason to cancel events Um there were some opposition amendments, but they were not accepted. Um, probably the other amendment that I'm pretty sure was accepted, uh, that is worth mentioning. And I think it did have all around support, but it was the Jess Phillips amendment, which outlawed NDAs in sexual misconduct cases. And I know there's been quite a lot on the, the, blo- the wonky blogs around that issue. So, um, yes, yeah, so there's also a blog that, uh, DK and Jim have put together, which, uh, rightly says we have watched the, um, the uh third stage reading so you don't have to uh, but yes it, it it seems to be somewhat sailing through now
1: and despite all these amendments uh, in your opinion is it you know any less of a steaming pile of turd <laughs> um more of a comment than a question
4: yeah I was gonna say I, I i think that makes it hard to kind of answer but i tell you what i think the thing is it's not so much of is it about the contents of this bill it's a distraction from all the other issues that are of far more importance that we've talked about earlier in this show that have no policy attention at all
1: and yeah the, for, for the generally the the interesting thing for me is um that the government have opened applications for the director of free speech and academic freedom which is a uh, the position at rfs that the bill bill creates and lots of fascinating stuff in the, in the candidate pack are any of you too planning on applying now, <laughs> as you could imagine but i, I do still have a, a bit of, of course a you have a of course you have around yeah. <laughs> how
3: that role is going to work as both a kind of champion agitator and an end line adjudicator ombuds, which might sound a bit kind of OIA technical, but it is quite hard to understand how, if your role is kind of to root out and almost promote and find issues with free speech, how you're then going to be able to sit down at the end of that process and, and make objective judgments. And that, you know, that is an issue we have we have raised a lot. And in fairness, we are being, you know, we're being spoken to about. And i think we'll carry on talking, you know, not just to DFE, but eventually to AFS about. But that does feel like quite an important issue. And it sort of compounds the other issue we have, which is that there could be quite a lot of confusion for students about when they should be going uh to through the ofs route and when they should be uh coming to the oia because so often free speech complaints are not really just going to be about free speech but they're going to wrap up lots of other issues
1: one one of the criteria that i i I quote is um experience of one or more of the following and and I'll, i'll just uh paraphrase operating complaints or other ombudsman style schemes I don't. don't
3: do I think it's actually seeing? important that if that if there is going to be an ombuds type role, that we are looking for an ombuds type person. As I say, I think the way the thing is set up could make that role quite difficult, though.
1: But I mean, it's in everyone's interest for someone who to approach it in the in the spirit of that uh, ombuds ombuds type role, as you, as you say, isn't it? I mean, it's it's. I guess the fear is that a essentially a kind of free speech. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure what the what the, the word is. You know, the the a crank, free speech crank, shall we call? You know, those people who just live and breathe this problem, and they, you know, they they believe, you know, it is the kind of the the thin end of the wedge of um you know all that is wrong with with britain in, in 2022 um you know who want to just crack down and um you know make it their life's their life's work that's kind of i guess it's the it's the sort of that's the worry isn't it it's not that it's not going to kind of be someone sensible to look at these cases as they come up and and make impartial decisions it's that um someone's going to use it as another political stick I think that's right and um,
3: um the number of times in the passage of the bill where it's been said, "Well, that will be down to the the individual in that role to make those difficult and fine judgments," has been really noticeable, hasn't it?
1: Well, uh, and, I, and I'm labouring this point because of, because of this reason, I think it is it is kind of really crucial that someone sensible, um, like like the like the good listeners of the Wonky Show, all of you, all of which are uh, very very sensible, I'm sure, um, and you, you can find details in the show notes on how to apply uh, and more details about this uh, strange 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 job, but um, well paid. 100 grand or so, something like that, I seem to... Ninja cool So yeah, it has its has its upsides. I'm not. I can see. I'm clearly not going to push any of you any further on that. Definitely. You heard it here first.
4: I mean, it it, it's only marginally less attractive than becoming the um the uh, advisor on ethics. Another hard to fill vacancy, right?
3: Difficult decision for Selena this weekend. Which (laughs) of these levels to go
2: into? I think the thing the thing is, it's like I I know that we've said this so many times, and it's so transparently political as to what it is. But I think for me, and Selena did mention this earlier. Um. But you know, I'm not normally. I'm not. I disagree with a lot of Jess Phillips' policies, but I had to hand it to her that she absolutely smashed uh, her amendment, and I, or I presenting her amendment, um, and what I liked about it because, again, I mean, I mean like so many, so many incidences before, um, it really pointed out how utterly contradictory this legislation is, um, and you know, by mentioning. Uh, that she'd bought up NDAs and institutions using Zelic principles, um, and she you know, she had that meeting with with Michelle, who um and and Michelle said, oh, you know the, the, these are things that legislation can't can't fix. we we can't we can't legislate for these things. And yet she turned around. To the, to the free speech higher education bill and I can't remember what she called it but she called it something like sector changing or something or whatever phrase she used to make it a big ticket item for herself um, but yeah I, I think one, one like I watched I watched the whole session and, and, and that moment I thought one I agree with what Jess is pushing for and I think that she's bang on the money with that but two I thought it was just another example of how this is only being weaponized in the political ways that this current sitting government and their supporters want it to be and actually it's not being you know applied across across the board so yes i'm exhausted with this everyone's exhausted with it but it's just an it's another tally on the on the contradiction chart for this bill um so thank you jess phillips for for that
1: so that's about it for this week Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So, thanks very much to Ben, Selena, Sunday, and everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky.